The word this morning comes from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 20. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The faith of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The word of the Lord. My name is Mike McAuliffe. Uh, my family and I have been members here at New City for, I guess, a, brand new, a little over two years, like you know, like two over two years. Um, and so... Uh, my wife and I, we are, we are parents to two little girls. So I have a seven-year-old uh, and I have a three-year-old. And so part of the nighttime routine every night is that we pray over our little girls. Um, so our three-year-old, and so every time you, her Ada, when we talk about praying for Ada, we say, Ada, what, what can we pray for you tonight, baby? And she's, without, without a doubt, always says, pray for me. Anything else? Nope, just me. So our three-year-old's selfish. So we have a three-year-old that's pretty selfish. Uh, then our seven-year-old, uh, Ella, is a little bit different. And so she's a little bit more broad than just pray for me. And so a lot of times now it seems to revolve around her fears. And so when we ask Ella, what can we pray for? She says, well, Daddy, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm scared of things. And so, baby, what are you scared of? I'm scared of the dark, even though the three flashlights aren't enough. Um, cockroaches. I'm, I, I promise we don't have a lot of cockroaches in our house, my MC people. Uh, gorillas. Uh, and, and zombies. Um, and also, let me just say to that, we do not let our seven-year-old watch The Walking Dead. I'm, I'm not sure where she comes with that, but she's scared of zombies. And so, and, and, we, and we realize that so often that fear gets this bad rap, like fear is a bad thing, but fear is actually can be a really good thing. So there's a rare disease called Urbach-Weiss disease. And so people who have it, there's only 400 known cases uh, in the world. And so if you have this, this condition, you experience no fear whatsoever. And so I was listening to this podcast uh, of this woman in California who has this, this condition, Urbach-White disease. 
And so with this condition, they would send her through like a battery of different tests. They would like put her through a haunted house, no response. I mean, they would have her handle snakes and tarantulas, no response. Like nothing seems to give her a rise because she has no sense of fear. At one point, so she was in a park, walking into a park, and a guy pulls a knife on her, and she just stares at him. And like she gets agitated, says, no, I'm going to cut you. I'm getting tired of this. I'm going to cut you. No sense of fear whatsoever. And as you're listening to this podcast, you realize that fear is a good thing because fear is also, a lack of fear is a bad thing because fear is what wakes us up at night when we hear a loud noise. Fear is what keeps us um, out of dangerous situations. Fear is what keeps us from driving 100 miles down 80, well, keeps some of us from driving 100 miles down 85. I'm like, you know, so fear can be a good thing, but fear can also be a a bad thing. Like a shadow, fear accompanies, accompanies us wherever we go. So it might not be snakes, you know, it might not be spiders. Instead, we might fear being alone or the thought of losing everything we work to gain or the fear of being rejected. You know, fear is something that we've all encountered and that we can all understand this feeling, this sense of fear. So my question is, how do we confront our fears? What is the biblical way? What does God say? How do we confront our fears? And I think we get a clear answer from the Psalms. And so we're going to take a look at Psalm 34. So I want to talk about three things today. First, I want to talk about the existence of our fears. So number one would be the existence of our fears. Two, the response to our fears. And three, the freedom from our fears. And the today's big idea is this. Freedom from our fear is found in fearing the Father. Freedom from our fear is found in uh, fearing the Father. And so a couple weeks ago, so when Ryan uh, started the series in Psalm 23, uh, he, 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 made this, he made this point. He said, the Psalms invite growth and self-awareness. And so Tim Keller, uh, my favorite pastor, author, uh, it says it this way. And, you know, and we got to remember that these 150 Psalms are full of raw emotion. They're full of, you can just feel like half of these Psalms are laments. Like, why God is this happening to me? So half of the Psalms are about laments. And so Tim Keller says it this way. The Psalms are not just a matchless primer of teaching, but a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. If you're feeling it, the Psalms are talking about it. If you're feeling it, the Psalms are talking about it. And so the point one, we'll get to it. Let's talk about the reality of our fears. And so the Psalm 34 uh, was written by David directly after it is connected. So if we, when we watch the verses at the top, there's a little like a couple like intro wor- verses that talks about where this comes from. And it actually comes from 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 21. <clears throat> so in 1 Samuel 21, before David was officially king, uh, he was actually spent 10 years almost like living this Robin Hood life. He was on the run for about 10 years, fleeing Saul, who was the king at the time, who was trying to kill him. And so what David did in 1 Samuel 21, he flees in desperation to the city of Gath. Does, does anybody know the, the significance of Gath? Philistine city. Gath is, is Goliath's hometown. So the guy that he, that he famously killed, he goes and he tries to find refuge in the, in the place where he made, that made him famous. 
So that's how desperate he is, that we see his desperation. And, And isn't that the thing about fear? Like, fear compels us to seek refuge in places that we will never find refuge. Whether it be more money, relationships, a new job, a new house, a new car, fear makes us think if we just had this thing, we just had that, then everything would be okay and my fears would be gone. But we know that isn't the case. So long after, I mean not long after, that David arrives in Gath and he's trying to almost just disappear and become this mercenary, just just go work in the fields and kind of disappear and, and hide, you know, he's discovered, not surprising. And so they start singing this song. The people recognize David and they start singing this song. You know, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And so, you know, David's terrified and he's, he's scared. And so he does the only likely and, un, and only thing that seems to make sense for him. He goes outside the gates of the city and starts scratching on the gates and foaming at the mouth, almost trying to act as though he's crazy. And so, and so the, then the people come to the King Asius at the time and said, like, I think we found David. I think he's here, but he's acting kind of crazy. And so, and so Asius is like, no, no, no. I don't care who he is. Get him out of here. So get, get him out of this town. Get him out of the city. We don't need any crazies around here because crazy, if you're crazy at that time, that opens a portal to, to, to worlds that you don't want to be a part of. So the king's like, get him out of here. And, da- and David flees. And so this is all happening is the context of Psalm 34. So this is the story of how we get to now Psalm 34. What we know about this psalm is that David was terrified. In verse 6, he calls himself a poor man. And in verse 4, he says that he's in a lot of fear. You can almost feel the weight, uh, as you read this psalm, the weight of David's fears as you read this. Everyone in this room knows what it feels like at one point in your life to be paralyzed by fear. It might be, not be the fear of imminent death, but a lot of us struggle constantly with fear. Fear causes us to think more about what is going wrong than what is going right. It's the yeah buts. Hey, you've got a great relationship with your family right now. There's no strife, but yeah, but that won't last long. Hey, you got a great job. you got a promotion. Yeah, but I still don't have enough money. It's the yeah buts. You got a good grade on your test, but yeah, but the next one's going to be tougher. But yeah, it's the summer, so we're okay. Yeah. So fear causes relationships to suffer because we're too busy trying to keep our charmed life together. We work too many hours and we say yes to too many things. Fear makes us fixate on the worst case scenario. And this is, this is the one that has become all too real to my family. Um, about a year ago, my father was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And so over this last year, on top of all of the, the, the physical pain that he has been in and everything that he has struggled through, the hardest thing is to watch him to be literally tormented by his fears. And there would be moments when my dad, and so he's now living up here, and, and he's from Florida, and so we moved him up here to, to take care of him and to be with him. And so there would be mornings when my dad would literally crawl into our room crawl into our room shaking and just saying, you've got to lock me up. You've got, you got, you got to send me to jail. You've got, you got, you got, you got to take me somewhere because of all the bad things that I've done. Like, my dad is one of the strongest people that I've ever met, that I know. When we did those papers as a kid, whenever we say, well, who are you going to be like when you grow up? I always wanted to be like my dad. 
and to see him now tormented by his fears and fears that no one else would even consider is now just paralyzing my dad because he wants to go to those worst case scenarios. And so what do I say to my dad? What do we say with this? How do we, how do we deal with this? And I came to realize that though it might look different, I'm no different. We're no different. Do you have an unhealthy fear of man? I do. I first want to line. Even as I was preparing this message, as I was working through and praying through this, this sermon, I, I would say, Lord, let me get out of the way. I just want the words. Whatever. Speak to hearts today, Lord. And at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm really saying, I really hope they like me. Do you have fear, man? Do you feel that you don't measure up? I constantly fall into that, that unhealthy trap of comparing myself to others. I'm not nearly as polished as communicating as so-and-so. He's a better father than me. I feel like I'm always, always letting my wife down. Do you fear the unknown? Is it a wayward child? Do you fear that you wasted your life? Are you disillusioned by marriage? Are you afraid you're going to be alone? Are you terrified of what people think about you? Is it a fear of sickness? The list goes on and on. And whether these fears are merited, they don't have to be life-threatening in order to crush us. If we're completely honest with ourselves, we all agree that we are people that are given over to fear. And the question is whether or not we experience fear. The question is, what do we do in regards to that? So that was the reality of our fears. So let's look at the, exist, the response to our fears. So Psalm 34, let's go to Psalm 34. Verse 1 says this. So, this is, so that was the reality. This is the existence of our fears. So we're going to look at the response to our fears. Let me clear that up. Verse 1 says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is saying, even in times of adversity, I will bless the Lord. David's fortunes were now at their lowest point. He had fled from the court of Saul on finding that Saul was intent on putting him to death. He had hoped to find a safe refuge with Asius, but had been disappointed. He was on the edge of becoming a fugitive and outlaw. He had no throne. Like he was, he was in caves. He had no throne. So that he was at his lowest point. And David's response is, even in times of adversity, I will bless the Lord. He wasn't on his throne. I can't tell you, though, how many times I hear this, that, that in order to really, and from, the, from a, a perspective, like my friends will tell me, that in order to really face your fears, you just need to believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. Love yourself more. If you love yourself more, just make a plan. And once you do all those things, your fears will disappear. That might be good advice. That might have some redemptive quality to it, but it hasn't worked for me. And what we see with David is something completely different. He is not believing in himself. He's not saying any of that. He is saying his only response is to get on his knees and bless the Lord because he knows it is the only place to find refuge. At his time of greatest desperation, David's first response was giving thanks to the Lord. In verse 2 it says this, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And so the word humble in this context is, is the Hebrew word means crouched, or bowed down. And so why does David use that phrase? Why is the phrase humble used in this, in this passage? And, and let the humble hear. And I think it's because in those moments when you know 
when you know it, it was that there's some kind of divine intervention in your life and you realize that the Lord did something that it only comes from the Lord, your only response is humility. Knowing when Jesus did it all, when God did it all, whatever that scenario, whatever that situation is, doesn't allow you to have a swagger. And so when you understand that, like that should be our response, is that that's why it's the, when the, let the humble hear. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, kneeling is not a formal religious habit, but the deep instinct of someone who senses that the only appropriate position before this great God is to lower oneself before him in admiration and awe. When you know the Lord did it, it's very difficult to have a swagger. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions who suffer, uh, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And I think David uses the imagery of young lions, and I think that he's reminding us, even the kings of the jungle, either ones at the top of the food chain, the strongest ones, suffer from want, and they have no remedy. But those who fear and seek the Lord will never be in want. And so, and hear this, the response to our fears is not try harder. It is not believe in yourself more and make a plan. The proper and only response to our fear is to run to the Lord, find refuge in Him, to fear Him. And as backwards as it sounds, it is so difficult as it sounds that the ultimate freedom is found the ultimate freedom from our fears is found in fear of the Lord when we go through the Old Testament uh, where the term you know you'll get this term over and over again you'll see this term fear of the Lord throughout the Old Testament and, and it comes across in some really interesting and baffling usages like for example uh, in uh, Proverbs 28 14 it says this the fear of the Lord is linked with great joy um, it tells us that happy is the one who fears the Lord always. And I'm, I'm thinking, how can someone who is constantly in fear be filled with happiness? Because that's not my story. Even more surprising, in Psalm 130, verse 4, it says this, Forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. The psalmist is saying that forgiveness and grace increase the fear of the Lord. There are a litany of verses that instruct us to, to grow in our fear of the Lord. Proverbs 31.30, um, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 19 verses 9 through 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they, are, than they than are gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think it's important for us to make a distinction about what the fear of the Lord is. And so when Martin Luther struggled understanding what the fear of the Lord meant, he kind of broke it down into two different types of fear, what he called servile fear and filial fear. Fear. So servile fear is the type of fear that somebody would have, like a, um, somebody that I mean, a slave would have towards uh, his, his owner, would have towards a tormentor, t towards a jailer. So it's this fear of, of constant like, pain and this clear and present danger 
that is represented by another person. So servile fear revised, um, refers to a posture of servitude towards a malicious owner. So later, um, Luther also distinguished the idea of filiophile. And so this is a filiophile drawing from the Latin concept of family. So filiophile comes from the idea of family in the Latin. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father and who dearly wants to please him. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves not, not because he's worried about punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. And so how many times as kids um, would we hear with our parents, what was the one thing you didn't want your parents to say to you? You, you can spank me, but just don't say I'm dis you're disappointed in me. You know, yeah, you just light me up, but my, my mom's here, but I'm not, she didn't spank me, I promise. Hey, mom, love you. Um, yeah, but you know, because it's a sense of disappointment. We don't want to disappoint the people that we love. And this is what that fear of the Lord is. It is not this sense of like, you know, this idea, well, don't do that because God's going to get you. That is not it. The fear of the Lord and a healthy understanding, the way that to counter our fears of this world, the ways that to counter the fears that we deal with is this healthy fear of the Lord because we don't want to displease him, because we're so connected to the Father. It's a positive fear. The positive fear is all about love. A positive fear is all about love. It's a, it's a joyful fear. This is what the fear of the Lord is. So to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience an awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. The proper response to our fears is fear of the Lord. And lastly, what's the remedy? You know, how can we believe we are being delivered uh, from our fears? I think we get a glimpse of this in verse 8. It says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. I think this is both a call to remember and look in real time to discover that God still answers prayers and that he is good, and also to look back and see how he continues meets us and look forward to see how he's going to meet us. Uh, so for example, uh, we need to remember that God works in real times. So I know this story. Um, so I was a youth pastor um, years ago in, in Florida, and there was this woman I remember that was struggling with this, this rare stomach disease that was slowly killing her. Um, and so after, uh, you know, doctor after doctor, they would go to, um, you know, everything, it's, you know, it's a story of the woman who was bleeding in Mark 5. Every doctor she went to, it just got worse. And so this was this woman's story, and it was a Sunday night, and Monday, the family was to go to um, a, a, one last doctor, one last hospital, and so the, the church as a whole were, were prayed over this woman, um, and uh, so the next morning she woke up, first time in years, and she wasn't in any pain. And so it was somewhat odd, but they're thinking, oh, maybe Maybe the, the prayers worked, and so they found out that later that day that she had been completely healed. It was a miracle. They had no idea what was going on, but she's lived a normal life ever since, where she was on her deathbed, and now she lives a normal life. Or even this week, um, so my seven-year-old Ella, one of her fears is cockroaches, right? And so we were outside playing, and she, uh, she saw, like, there's like a, she's on the sidewalk, and there's a cockroach there. And so she looks at this cockroach, and she says, Jesus... She looks at the cockroach. Co cockro this is her story. The cockroach looked back at her. I don't know how she knew that, but they, they had like a standoff or something, but they were going back and forth. And she said, like, Jesus, 
please help that cockroach just go away. And the cockroach, she opened her eyes, cockroach turned around and just ran the other direction. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I mean, so we see this one. Or even, or even later, on Friday, so Youth for Christ is the organization that I work with. Um, and so we did our volunteer appreciation uh, dinner. And so one of the, the women helping us set up, her name's Jesse. And Jesse was telling me, like, you know, I was really hoping to get some extra money, spending money for this summer. And uh, so I was in the car, listening to the radio, and they had one of those, hey, uh, if you call in now, you will receive a $100 gift card or whatever. And she called in and she won. I'm like, and that's awesome. Because God still, we got to remember that God still answers, is still present with us, and he answers prayers. That's awesome. At the same time, the reality is some of us know the experience of like, when we speak to God and we pray about something, all we hear is silence. And so what do we do there? Like, what do we do when we realize that sometimes it's, it's, it's silence? Because, you know, we are still praying for my dad's healing. He's been given less than a year to live, but we're still praying for that healing. That's a prayer that hasn't been answered yet. So, so when God seems silent, what's our response to that reality? And I think we get a picture of that in the tail end of these verses, in verses 17 through 20. And it says this, When the righteous cry for the help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers the him out of them all. You know, I read this, and it almost seems as though that David has given us a blanket promise from God saying, you know, whatever it is, whatever our troubles, just God will comfort us uh, when we are crushed and brokenhearted. Like, you know, whatever it is, he's going to protect us. But, there's verse 20. In verse 20, it says this, and this is one of the realization of, of both sides of the story. But, when we read verse 20, it says this, he, being God, will protect all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So if you don't recognize this reference, this is a messianic prophecy of what happened to Jesus on the cross. This is the, talking about the crucifixion. So it comes from John's Gospel and its account of the crucifixion when the soldiers refrained from breaking Jesus' legs uh, to hasten his death because he was already dead. And so in, and so in 19, uh, John, um, John 19.36 is this. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. I, I read this and want to say, but yeah, he still died. He was still crucified. Like, that doesn't sound like he's going to protect us from everything because Jesus still died. And what I'm starting to realize, and you know, even, oh, I'm sorry, and I think about this too. It, it, even Jesus, when he was in the garden, prayed that this cup would be taken away from him, but it wasn't he wasn't, it still happened to him. So the same thing that we deal with in those moments where we hear these prayers that have not been answered, Jesus experienced the same thing. But I realize my understanding versus Scripture, I know that there's always lacking something in my understanding. Jesus' bones weren't broken, but he died a painful and hideous death. God didn't save him from that, but God's protection of Jesus extended past the grave. He was raised from the dead. So while God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you, ultimately through the resurrection you are safe. You will walk through death and come out the other side fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. God does not always protect us from everything that harms us. He protects us as we go through them to the other side of the resurrection where our hopes, our real hopes and happiness lie. 
So C.S. Lewis is by far one of, if not my favorite author, um, whether that be his, his children's books, uh, anything else he's written, everything else that he's written, uh, I, I love C.S. Lewis. And so, uh, like a lot of you know, he wrote the series, The Lion, the Witch, well, The Chronicles of Narnia, and one of them, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, tells the adventures of the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And so they live in this magical kingdom called Narnia. And so, uh, so Lewis writes this like, as an allegory of, of Christ um, and, and salvation, and Christ is represented by this lion named Aslan. There we go. Good. Okay, good. I'm a, I'm a teacher by trade, so I want to go back and forth. Like, so elementary ed degree, yay. Okay, anyways. All right, so, and, so this is where the story goes, and this is what happens in what it said. It says this. Uh, so this is Lucy. and Mr. So, okay, let me just set the story up. Um, so they are now in Narnia uh, for the first time, and they're learning about Narnia and with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. So Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the four children about Narnia. And so this is the, the kids talk to, talking to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and it says this. And so is he, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. I want to do a British accent, but I won't, okay? So just go with this redneck from Florida. Okay, so don't you know who the king of the beast is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, that you will dearie, and make no mistakes said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. To wrap this all up, here's what I think fearing God means today. I think fearing God means that in your heart, God is so powerful, so holy, and so awesome that you would not dare run away from him, but only run to him. You come reverently, you come humbly, you come without any presumption that you deserve anything or that God owes you something. If we really think that God is good, we don't get to define what good is. Jesus faced our biggest fear, death and separation from God so that we would never have to. That is why David, that is why we can have confidence that when we ask, the Lord will hear us and he will be delivered because we will be delivered because he has delivered us. If he has delivered us from our greatest fear, then why don't you think that he would also deliver us from our lesser fears? Do you really think that God is good? Do you fear the Lord? Let's pray. Father, I'm just continually reminded of, of where I fall short here. That I, on a daily, hourly, minutely basis, um, fear things that I shouldn't, Father. And then I don't have a, a, a healthy fear of you. My fear of you, Father, seems to revolve more about thinking that you're going to get back at me for something that I shouldn't have done instead of just realizing all that you have done. So Father, I pray that you just be with us this morning. Whatever that fear may be, or whether it be fear of man, fear of feeling like we missed it, fear 
that we don't measure up, whatever those fears are, Father, help us realize that the ultimate freedom from those fears is to fear you. It's to be so connected and so grafted into who you are, Father, that the other things just fall away. And that we are able to say, regardless, that we know that you are good. Help us not try to define that anymore, Father. We love you. Trust us in Jesus' name. Amen.